Welcome to the Geneva Center for Security podcast. I am your host, Dr. Paul Vallée, Associate Fellow with the GCSP Global Fellowship Initiative. For the next weeks, I will be talking with the subject matter experts to explain issues regarding peace, security, and international cooperation. Thanks for tuning in once again. In following issues of international security and cooperation, the GCSP shows a keen interest in the diverse regions of the international community. And today, we we'll focus our eye on Latin America, from which several personalities and practitioners have contributed to our activities, both in training and reflection. Of course, being joined by such a personality today is Mr. Alvaro Sedeno Molinari, the co-founder of Perfectible.io who is speaking to us from Costa Rica. While uh, today uh, he works as a narrative futurist, and I'm sure we'll all be very interested in discovering what this uh, new activity is like, keeping watch on current uh, issues, and especially those that uh, surround climate change, on which uh, he focused while an executive in residence at the GCSP in 2019, Alvaro Sedeno worked for over 10 years for the uh, Costa Rican Trade and Diplomatic Service. Uh, rising in the uh, ranks uh, to where uh, reached out of ambassador with a uh, service uh, respectively in Beijing, Tokyo, the OECD, and finally as a prominent representative of Costa Rica to the uh, WTO in Geneva. So welcome to the post, Alvaro. It's uh, very nice to uh, see you again. Thank you, Paul. It's great to uh, talk to you again and to see you again. Uh, it's unbelievable that it's been almost two years since we met last. Indeed, indeed. So, of course, uh, we're going to be keenly interested in uh, seeing, uh, you know, what uh, your eye from uh, your your home country uh, is like on several of the events that have uh, touched us uh, all. So, of course, my first question to you would be, of course, as a, a narrative futurist, uh, but also uh, in your identity as a Latin American, uh, what are the principal human and environmental security challenges that you would identify as our priority concerns today? Well, the first, the first thing I would say is that Latin America was not very well prepared for a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the most striking fact about that unpreparedness is that less than 50% of Latin American citizens have access to universal healthcare or to healthcare in any, in any, in any way. Yes. So when, when you have such levels of widespread vulnerability, uh, a pandemic can, can do m- much harm, uh, let alone uh, talk about the economic uh, vulnerabilities that are part of the system as well. So the impact has probably, the impact of COVID-19 has probably pushed Latin America in developmental terms a couple of decades back. Mm. Uh, so I would say that's uh, definitely a challenge. Uh, yeah. But beyond COVID, I would say that Latin America has ill preparedness for for climate shocks, for the for the climate crisis that we're in, and this is something that we are still very very good uh, on time in order to prepare better because Latin America possesses probably forty percent of all of the Earth's fresh water, about 50% of all of the world's rainforests, sufficient arable land to feed the entire planet. Uh, So it's easy to argue that Latin America could very well be the future of human life on Earth. But on top of that uh, challenge slash opportunity, 
there is a severe security challenge that we've been facing for the last 40 years, which is drug trafficking. And it's only getting worse. It doesn't matter how you call it, how you finance it. Drug trafficking is the nuclear bomb that detonated in Latin America. And this is killing our youth. This is destroying our families and our communities. This is infiltrating our public institutions. This is creating perverse incentives for people to opt out of the formal legal system and start operating on the fringes beyond what's legal, trafficking uh, essentially a very toxic drug into a market that consumes it that's not even in Latin America. Mm. So, so these are some of the struggles that I see. And maybe one last one, if I could mention, is that democracy has been struggling for long. Uh, and it seems to be a permanently incomplete process for the region. Uh, we've had a lot of military dictatorships. We've had, obviously, ideological adventures that have caused a lot of harm and a lot of damage. And the governance of democratic institutions remains as a big question mark for the entire region. And COVID-19 has revealed that in many cases, uh, many countries are not really being governed at all. Uh, mm -hmm. some, some would even claim that we are looking at some failed states in several cases. So, yes, that would be, I guess, my, my grim introduction. Yeah, well, um, I mean, it uh, does show that uh, there is, a, I think, uh, ample uh, room for the, the narrative futurist in you and uh, your fellows who think about these issues to reflect on this variety uh, of experiences, both, both you know, uh, uh, problematic uh, and, of course, also sometimes optimistic that, that Latin America has. Uh, in order to uh, tackle these issues. So, so my next question to you would be uh, whether, you know, out of all of this reflection, uh, what kind of role model and, and possible leadership do you see for uh, Latin America when it uh, uh, is tackling these challenges within global discussions of the kinds that you have had when you were representing your country in uh, international organizations? This is a very interesting question, because I think that Latin America has never seen itself or behaved, for the matter, as a uniform group of countries. Let's say, as, as the European Union has behaved uh, for, for a number of decades. We in Latin America don't even understand the potential we have by having I don't know, 20 countries that speak the same language, mm -hmm. that being Spanish, and not being too distant to Portuguese in Brazil. So mm -hmm. I would say that if we understood the potential we have of utilizing our, our joint languages that are very similar in terms of market opportunities in the digital economy, for example, just to name one application, we would be much stronger than we are right now. Mm -hmm. Now, if we, if we, extrapolate that potential into politics or uh, e global uh, economy or even culture. Uh, I think that there is a lot that Latin America could do to improve its condition, but also to lead the world in, in multiple areas. Uh, I would say, for example, that Latin America has all the potential to become a global leader as a region in nature-based solutions or nature-based socioeconomic solutions? How can, we, how can we bounce beyond from where we were before COVID to a more prosperous place uh, for all forms of life, not only for human beings? So how do we 
produce well-being from the biosphere is uh, an enormous potential that countries like Costa Rica have uh, a track record to show uh, to the rest of the region. I think that also Latin America could become very strong in, in social entrepreneurship initiatives. Uh, and, this, and this is the derivative from the challenge of governance. I would say that in many countries in Latin America today, what we are seeing is civil society initiatives that are bypassing uh, government failure or public sector deficiencies. Mm. So the, the opportunity of this being a fertile ground for civil, civil society initiatives that are doing things better, more efficiently, cheaper, more, uh, more impactful than a government is, is actually encouraging. And then I would add another, another element, which would be that uh, we should be able to at least start a conversation that would be an ongoing conversation towards reaching consensus about the future we want as Latin American nations and what kind of global role we would see ourselves playing. Probably this would be more likely achieved if we started discussions among regional blocks of countries, because there are big differences between Caribbean nations, Central America, the Andean countries of South America, Mercosur itself, mm -hmm. the Pacific Alliance. So there are blocks that are already established and, and having conversations between them, trying to transcend ideology would probably be a good way to start. And last in, in this in this. Uh, segment of leadership, I would say that Latin America is unaware of the enormous potential it has from the very rich and diverse and numerous indigenous cultures that are still living in our countries. Um, and this has enormous potential in terms of how can we become inspired from the way these original nations have been thriving for millennia. Mm -hmm. And right now when we're facing challenges that make us wonder if the next 10 years are going to be too difficult to manage or too difficult to survive, we have millions of people here that have been living for more than a thousand years in a very successful manner, being focusing on the future, respecting nature, and being inventive, imaginative, and entrepreneurial today. So... That's the kind of leadership I would like to see for this region. Well, um, that's, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, I think something that leads me to uh, my, my next uh, reflection, because uh, listening to uh, you uh, elaborate on, you know, the, the, these different possible roles and the reflections that you, you conduct on, you know, what your region can uh, contribute uh, uh, for itself and, and for the world. Uh, it makes me wonder if, uh, of course, as a, uh, part of uh, uh, your uh, work as a diplomatic practitioner brought you to reflect on these uh, issues and now on in your new career uh, as a consultant to most uh, uh, of the uh, the civil society private sector and also the, this role of yours as a, as a narrative of futurist it made me wonder uh, whether uh, there is a particular worldview or, or, or a culture in, 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 in foresight, as we would call it, uh, that you identify with, with people from Latin America in, in particular? This is very interesting that you ask this question. Um, I, I lived abroad for 14 years 
And in those 14 years, I lived in five different countries in four different continents. And when, when, you, are, when you are living abroad, you are experiencing many different uh, differences from what you're used to. So coming back to Costa Rica, which I only did over a year ago, has allowed me to realize all the opportunities there are to make incremental or even disruptive changes around here. But more importantly, uh, one thing I've, I've learned living abroad is that people tend to know their history very well. And this means that they accept where they come from. And, and that also means that they tend to know where they're going. And, and this is very important in terms of development, long-term future, uh, thinking, planning, implementation of decision-making. But two, two thoughts come to mind uh, in particular. One is the fact that when I was living in Japan, I learned that Steve Jobs was inspired by the Japanese Zen philosophy, art, and culture in order to create the iPhone. Mm -hmm. And Japanese people generally don't know this. And they actually don't find inspiration in their own cultural heritage, even though they know their history very well. So I think that Latin America could be somehow similar in that regard. We are unaware of all the in immense value that our cultural heritage has. And how could we become inspired by it? I think this is a, a very interesting challenge that obviously runs along the lines of what education should be like for our, for our children and youth. And the second idea that comes to mind is a comparison with, with the Vietnamese culture. Uh, they've been victims to extreme forms of violent for, violence for over a thousand years. Mm -hmm. uh, but they have remained cohesive and determined and resilient to bounce beyond violence and conflict. So I wonder if Latin America could learn uh, about that resilience, about that grit that the Vietnamese people have in order to say, well, you know, maybe we are not to blame for our own uh, uh, mishappenings, but we are responsible for the prosperity that lies beyond and how do we manage to co-create it together. So, mm -hmm. yeah, a couple of thoughts in that line. It's fascinating as well, too, because, uh, of course, as you uh, highlight uh, your reflections honed, uh, by your time abroad, of course, it uh, reminds us that, uh, of course, uh, here in Geneva, we do have a quite vibrant uh, community of uh, uh, people who represent the diversity of the, of the Latin American continent uh, over here, too. So I wonder whether they, too, uh, use this kind of exposure to, to think about issues at home. So, so my next question to you is, well, precisely about the, this experience of a of homecoming as well too, because uh, I, I remember we, we used to talk about it uh, when you were over here too. But uh, of course, as you already mentioned in, in the uh, course of the discussion, Costa Rica enjoys a fine reputation for its uh, policies of uh, sustainable uh, ecotourism. And uh, of course, apart from the other uh, damages that you've mentioned in, in relation to uh, the, the pandemic, I was wondering how much has the reduction of international travel damaged that sector? And uh, uh, has it 
impeded its uh, development or led to uh, any kind of questioning of uh, continuing with that uh, as you rebuild? Paul, just to clarify from something I said before in case it's um, confusing, Costa Rica actually has 100% universal healthcare coverage. Ah, so, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I think this is important to mention because that makes it a very different country uh, within uh, Latin America. Nevertheless, uh, tourism was probably the number one industry that employed most people before COVID. Nearly 40% of our workforce was directly or indirectly related to the tourism industry. And a year ago, it came to a sudden stop completely. Mm -hmm. So this was extremely impactful for thousands of families that lived uh, out of tourism. Now, when we reopened our borders six months ago in October, the tourism influx that started coming back was about 20% of what it used to be in the last high season. We are in high season right now, high mm -hmm. tourism season right now. And we are only seeing like 20% of the tourists that used to come. But the ones that are coming are staying a lot longer than, than they used to. Uh, before COVID, tourists would come in average for nine days to Costa Rica. But now you see some that are coming and staying for two months or even more, mm -hmm. as long as their visas allow them to stay. And this is probably uh, one of the ways to explain is that we're seeing the beginnings of what we could call the post-tourism era or the digital nomad era of tourists that are not really full-time travelers, but they come here and they work during their working hours. And when they have spare time, they go and enjoy the beach, the forest, the mountain. And this is very interesting because if you ask the car rental services, for example, they are going to tell you that they've never had such a great uh, tourist season ever, even though we are receiving only 20% of the tourists that used to come. So if this is true and this hypothesis proves correct that we are seeing the beginning of digital nomads coming to Costa Rica, then our biggest challenge is to offer uh, connectivity infrastructure, which are the highways for the digital economy. If you're going to come to Costa Rica for three months and you are an artificial intelligence programmer or you work with virtual reality or you operate in the cloud with cybersecurity, for example, you're going to need very good internet. And that is something that we are still lagging a bit behind. Uh, so this is something that we need to improve as soon as possible in order to get things going. But overall, I would say that what we are starting to see is very promising. And I would even say an improvement to what it used to be before COVID. Oh, well, that's uh, uh, quite fascinating to, to hear you describe the, the conditions for an, ev an eventual bouncing back uh, uh, despite such a such a challenge, and uh, as you say, you know, if you have the uh, potential to uh, reflect on 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 these lessons and to act early enough on them, that's uh, uh, certainly a plus. So maybe, of course, to uh, uh, conclude our, our discussion, my my last question would be to the uh, the narrative futurist in you: Can you uh, go on giving us uh, some notes of uh, of optimism after uh, such a tough tough year? That's very interesting, actually, because I think <laughs> COVID. Um, made of 2020 
a year of revelations. And the revelations that I initially saw were of all the converging crises that we had as a global community. And I named them, uh, it's eight of them. We had a sanitary crisis combined with an economic crisis, combined with a climate crisis, with biodiversity crisis, with energy, with uh, politics. And politics, I mean, the ability to negotiate and forge uh, political agreements. Mm -hmm. Then a crisis of vision. We don't know where we're going as a humanity. And mm -hmm. finally, a crisis of narrative. We are, you know, for, I don't know, 60,000 years, humanity made progress by being able to imagine a future that did not exist and being able to persuade others to follow that imaginative future. And we've made enormous success following this, this way of being. But lately, we don't have that, especially not as a global community. So the opportunity is ripe, I would see, to figure out ways in which each one of these eight crises can be transformed considering the others. So for the first time, we are not uh, looking through silos. We are looking at the, the bigger forest and saying, okay, well, if we want to fix the sanitary crisis, we're also going to figure out a way to deal with biodiversity loss. And then perhaps what that requires is a cohesive narrative that is going to allow us to move together in multiple fronts. So I mentioned earlier nature-based solutions that has a lot to do with climate and the economy. Obviously, the, the, the political challenges are there and how can we relearn to negotiate because I think that's a skill that we've lost somehow. I also think that what we are seeing right now is a scenario of converging opportunities. So there are many lessons to be learned from all industries and sectors. And it, maybe not, now that I mentioned silos, I wouldn't say that the ideal approach is the traditionally uh, known breaking the silos mentality. I would say that silos are important. They contain a lot of expert analysis and data. I would say that what we need is a better communication between the silos so mm -hmm. that it is more effective and we can move uh, together uh, in a more in a more efficient manner and then if i could say something that really awakens my sense of optimism is that the fourth industrial revolution is reaching maturity in the sense that everything that we can we already know that whatever we can transform technologically to utilize data to make uh, further improvements to the human interaction with technology. If, if this fourth industrial revolution has reached its maturity right now, we are about to enter the fifth industrial revolution, which is likely going to be uh, hyper-connectivity of internet, whether you call it 5G or whatever other technology that comes our way that is going to allow us to do many more operations online than the ones we are able to do today. But this is going to lead us into a sixth uh, industrial revolution, which is the convergence of life and technology. And we are already seeing a little bit of that. Uh, biotechnology has, has a lot of potential in that regard. To my understanding, technology is craving more and more information about how nature works so that technology can better imitate the way nature works in terms of 
being circular, being regenerative, being sustainable. And this is going to require a lot more people paying a lot closer attention to nature. So biomimicry is actually being able to imitate nature. And this means that those communities like Costa Rica that have very close proximity with enormous amounts of biological diversity are going to have a chance to lead into that sixth industrial revolution. And that is actually why I refer to this as the, four, the sixth tropical revolution, because it could be hosted in the tropics, uh, bringing together technology and investment from elsewhere, but utilizing the biodiversity that we have locally. That was absolutely uh, fascinating. Really a very interesting note on which to uh, end because this is uh, all we're going to have for today's episode. So uh, I really want to uh, thank you very much, uh, Alvaro Cedeno Molinari, for uh, joining us uh, today. It has been a real joy to talk to you and I hope we'll have uh, more occasions on these matters. For listeners, please listen to us again next week to hear the latest insights on international peace and security. Don't forget that you can subscribe to us on Anchor FM, on Apple iTunes. You can also follow us on Spotify and on SoundCloud. I'm Paul Valle with the Geneva Center for Security Policy. And until next time, bye for now.